Robert Schwab, CEO and co-founder of Racken and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is a book group discussion. Uh, if you are not participating in our book groups, I strongly recommend you, you look ahead and see what we are reading and, and join in. This time we discussed Data Science in Context, which is a relatively academic book by uh, a series of um, doctors, uh, PhDs, uh, Spectre, Norvig, Wiggins, and Wing. Uh, and they got into some really fascinating, the book gets into some really fascinating analysis techniques talking about um, both the practical and ethical implications of data science applications. And we have a fantastic conversation about how the book works and also the biases inherent in the books, the, the things that are missing and potentially disruptive to the core assumptions of the book. So even if you haven't read this book, I think you will find the discussion fascinating. Uh, one note in composition here is that we opened our discussion uh, as we usually do. We have about 15 minutes of, of, of open discussion that doesn't make it on the recording. I'm keeping our discussion about open AI in the uh, podcast so you will get about 10 minutes of that discussion uh, as a warm-up for our book group discussion because it is very related. Our conversations about what has been going on with OpenAI, either Board and QSTAR, are directly related to where we go at the end of the conversation in our discussion about data science and context. I want to provide you with that so that you understand why we don't just jump directly into the book discussion. Uh, I know you will enjoy both the warm-up and uh, really deep talk about data science and context. Enjoy. Just as a as a current events thing, any any people have thoughts on the uh, OpenAI kerfluffle? Word kerfluffle? Yeah, I think it's I think Word. it's going to make a. I'm sorry, Tyler. Go ahead. I, I said I think it's going to make a fun movie. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, Michael Lewis was was um preoccupied with uh Sam Bankman Freed for the last, you know, year and a half. So he didn't get to follow open AI and and track, you know, Sam Altman. But yeah, you could imagine a, you know, uh a, a a book and a screenplay out of that whole thing. But you, but Tyler, you're absolutely right. Someone is going to write it. Actually, many people are going to write it, and there'll be there'll be multiple takes on it. But um, there was just there was so much. Um, not disinformation, but speculation that after a couple repetitions started to be um mm -hmm. accepted as as you know fact and it was i mean it was a cl it was classic um this is what these are the kinds of things where you're almost better off just saying you know what i'm turning off the channel for the next 48 hours and waiting to see yes. what falls out Yes, it's it's like I don't have time for that noise right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's I mean it was it, it's pretty clear that this was this was going to happen at some point in time. There's too much uh, there's too much writing on OpenAI and. The fact that Microsoft came off as calm, collected, and you know, butter would not melt in our mouth. Kind of, <laughs> uh, that I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know, right? I just don't, I don't buy it. And it's there's, they've got too much, too much going. The fact, though, that you know, within it seemed like moments, Satya 
announced that Sam Altman and and uh, Bachner were going to head up some new operation, and you know, it's just no, no. Yeah, it's, it's I, yeah, it's like uh, it's like calling Vladimir Putin a benevolent dictator. <laughs> I mean, Microsoft being the good guys in all of this. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, the peacemakers. Let's let's step back and take a breath, right? Yeah. That's hyperbole, by the way. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Um, I think that um, I think that uh, it's it's hard to say what it's going to do what it's going to, what the impact's going to be. Well, you you know, what struck me over the last couple of months with all of this going on is how dramatically different the conversations are with folks like us in industry and the other people in IT shops at ABC widget company. And, you know, the IT people, the practitioners I've been talking to are like, so what? Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, I was like, have you used it? And they're like, yeah, we played, I played around with chat GPT a little bit. You know, I use it sometimes maybe, but there's no, there, there's, there's really no. And, and, and granted, I don't have a statistically valid sample of, of conversations. Um, but it's kind of, um, so what we, we've, we're, we're keeping the lights on y'all. And that's how I don't get fired. And <laughs> and this is just too big of a thing for us to try to deal with right now. Yeah. It's there is a there is a community and, and it's outside of outside of the the venture capital, you know, kind of very, very, you know, fast and fluffy. Um this stuff goes on around here, but that is is serious about it, and it does make a difference. And there, uh, there were a number of folks who were um, at least verbally talking about. They were they were expressing the opinion that they did not feel comfortable betting the farm on open AI because of this, and that they were now for the first time seriously looking at Anthropic, um, for example, I heard a couple times. And, uh, and then a couple of them were saying, well, we've always been uh, keeping a close eye on the open source uh, LLFs that that came out of um first of all from the the meta release of uh llama 2 llama and then llama 2 so i think i think it's done a little damage to the open ai freight train but not not a not a lot i don't yeah, think yeah i i agree rich do, do you guys have a feel for, I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at the, you know, the uh, the, the rate of hallucinations for chat GPT being low, lower than a lot of the other ones. Uh, and But it's not clear to me that OpenAI's current advantage is anywhere close to where it would need to be to not be in a in a in a fist fight with the Amazons and Googles of the world. I mean, how much money do we think that Amazon is spending on AI right now? A lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, it's a huge amount. Huge amount. And and but they, they're they, playing they're playing catch up. But yeah. I I I, I don't they are. I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe in terms of the offerings, but if we think about the muscle memory they've developed by using machine learning in their retail business over the last 15 years, I'm not so sure. And this is well, the challenge is I don't I don't believe Amazon's good at, at internal collaboration. 
So maybe maybe I'm you know underestimating them, but I I think that their whole design strategy is incredibly um, distributed in you know leadership, sure. and I think they've got great yeah. people and they've got a whole bunch of things. I think the benefit that you see with uh, Sam Altman is you know there 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 is a fair bit of you know directed leadership on on this. Um, the, one of the things that came up in that, that I've heard about, but I haven't seen anything is the Q star question. So part of, part of what, you know, my team was just telling me that they're, they're reading that this thing called Q star has the, had the board scared and the employees frightened, excited. And that that was the part of the, the benefit, but what is Q star? Okay. Q star is actually the combination of two fairly esoteric approaches and it uh, what seems to have been the case is that they found that the use of QSTAR was using QSTAR their experiments were that they found it actually able to do without being trained explicitly to do uh, mathematics, certain kinds of math. Uh, and okay. so it by itself, QSTAR is not, you know, going to, you know, rock the world. But two things. One is there was a this Reuters article that started this whole thing, claimed that there was a memo, uh, you know, a, a kind of a sky is falling memo that went to the board about QSTAR and no one, including any of the board members, can find such a memo. So it's possible that that was somebody's, I, I won't call it a fable. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was a hallucination. I think, I think they, um, it, what, what's fairly clear is that they, there was a lot of chatter about QSTAR. I think that the Microsoft guys knew about it. I think that somebody at Microsoft, this would be complete speculation at this point. I think somebody at Microsoft saw what was going on there, assumed that the board as now as previously configured would you know kind of plant the flag and say we have reached agi at which point the charter says anything that they come up with that's age that the board declares as agi because there's no test for it does not get included in the license to microsoft or anybody else until it has gone through a very extensive process not and that process is not described so here you've got an executive let's just say an executive at microsoft who sees what's going on here gets a little panicky about whether the board is going to basically declare victory on AGI, at which point things stop with respect to Microsoft getting open AI, you know, advances, advanced technology. That strikes me as more a likely scenario of, okay, we got to do something to shake this up. This cannot, this cannot, this cannot proceed as uh, with that scenario, at which point somebody <laughs> finally takes a hard look at the board and the the governance of of open AI and says, Ooh, this is just this is this is too much of a threat. Stunning. And, and I, I do want to switch over and talk about the book. Um, yeah. 
but it's it's stunning to me that um, this technology is feels like it's it's not as evenly distributed as other right. It seems like their their OpenAI actually has a real leadership position, um, yeah. which and for almost yeah. all of the tests that are out there that are being used to you know run through the the foundational foundation models um yeah it's got it's got a distinct advantage on almost all of them i i think pretty much all of them fascinating yes that's fascinating so all right to the book <laughs> yeah have a physical copy data science yeah. in context um it it made it easier for me to to walk away from things and read it um and also scan it because there are chapters where where it um i needed to be able to turn pages quickly um <laughs> Oh my goodness, Rich! You would recommend this this book. I would love to have you set it up because I, I there's just so much here. Yeah, and and uh, you this is not a, you know sit down and and read it in in one sitting type of thing uh, by any any yeah. Here's what I really thought was worthwhile. They started out with the foundations and that were that and they came at it from the the point of view that we've got statistics we've got operations research we've got computer science and computer and, and computer science writ large and that in point of fact what data science is is this combination it really is a um a composite of all of these things which brings me to a couple of things one is that most of the data engineering that goes into data science or has underpinned data science has been coming from also a set of different directions but not some of the same ones and there's a lot that's missing but then they go through and they do what i think is is worthwhile and they they apply the the whole framework for ethical considerations they don't deep end on it they use precedence and go back to the kinds of ethical considerations that were generated in looking at biomedical and the biomedical um, data analysis and the use of bioinformatics. And they do that in, in the third chapter. And when they when they they kind of make a specific reference to the Belmont stuff, that's the point at which I said to myself as I'm reading through this. Oh boy, this is this is this is a here's some thoughtful folks, broadly broadly educated, have lived this life, watched it happen, and they've done a very nice job of introducing ethical considerations as kind of a fourth leg of the stool. And I think that follows through the rest of the book and it once i got through that first part that first section which was kind of like reading kant where you have to spend 80 pages with all of the all of the pre presuppositions and and axioms and say if you understand this and if you agree with this now look what we can do with it so um at that point, I thought that they did a nice job of very high level descriptions of how you would apply data science, and they gave a nice set of very you know good set of them of them. And I thought that their rubric 
was worthwhile as a as a guide you know kind of a high level map to the rest rest of the the thought process is that, that was, I, the rubric the rubric really really stood out to me as um as a powerful component yeah. for what they were what they were doing um were you able but, to, and then they, to stay with it yeah. rob were you able to stay with it through through the end of the book i i got what i i got through um like let's see i got i got pretty far deep into chapter into chapter 11 and actually there's some some graphical stuff in in chapter 11 that i think are really interesting but i ran out of time from that perspective just from a, an attention i should wanting my attention more than the time because i had the time um and then but i jumped into uh the questions about I, I jumped towards the end where they talk about quality governance concluding like i like they it, it's it's well laid out because they have these so it, I, I don't know how well how much other people have read of the book um so it's worth it's worth making a note of what they did um because they they actually come to re real conclusions based on these analysis grids so for every um boy and they were current because this had covid information in it this is a re you know very real reasonable recent book um what they what they did was they took all of these different um, scenarios where data science is applied, and then they came up with a standard uh, table of interactions around um, that's one two three four five six seven eight eight dimensions, where you would you would say all right there's there's a general I'm looking at the one on government service and political applications of data science, and so they they break down that general topic into like targeting political campaigns, detecting maintenance needs, personalizing, uh, personalized reading tutors, criminal sentencing. So very like broad, you know, categories of, of this class of AI. And then they score it on these dimensions. And, 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 and they don't, they I, don't, I don't call it, they don't call it AI. They don't call it out as AI so much as they sure. do machine learning and and analysis or statistics and so forth and that was the other thing yeah. that they didn't they didn't that's a trap they did not fall into which was a good and idea i think that's reasonable yeah because a you lot know, of this is because go ahead no sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no go ahead i and i'm, I'm going to shut my blinds because the sun is in my eyes while you talk okay Thanks, Rob. <laughs> that's a that's a backhanded smack. Um, oh, what? <laughs> Rich gets what I, where I'm coming from, but I meant it lovingly and jokingly. Um, okay. The the first point, getting through the book, it's like le it's it was in a way awe inspiring and like reading Leon Uris. <laughs> you know, it's like pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. Yes. You need absorption time, yeah, to really, really process what they're saying. What I loved about the book, though, was it is a very humanistic approach to subjects that are extremely dry. It had, in parts, a bit of too much of a moralistic thread for my liking, but in other parts, just a purely humanistic one. I think what they need to check, though, is it was, and I, I've said this a lot about a lot of books, and I don't mean it so negatively as it sounds, it's a very U.S.-centric parochial view of the world. It is a U.S. Huh. It is absolutely built on the back of us uh research development yes. and the way these these three and then the, the of the four will come together yeah no, that's and that's where i found and that's where i found i sort of disagreed with certain parts of it and you know like on on the interactions 
so to speak, or the way the ethical view was kind of being put in, it was a little parochial because if you took some of the questions that they posed and asked people from around the world what their view of it would be, you'd get very mixed opinion in comparison to perhaps a North American-centric or even a U.S.-centric perspective. So I, I point that out only because I found that certain of the assumptions and certain of the conclusions tended to lean in that direction and were not as open-minded as I sort of expected them to be in one sense or as privacy-related as I think the Europeans might see it. So from that perspective, I would call it out only from, from those things. That's what I'm saying. Overall, I found it to be very humanistic, somewhat moral, ethically, 100%, based on you know a person like me who's lived in many countries. But the perspectives need to be shifted slightly and varied to be a rest of the world kind of thing. Do you think I, I, I really appreciate that 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 perspective shift because I, I do think it really has me re read the book. Uh, this is this be, this is one I think that a book club in the middle of, of reading the book is invaluable. Um, yeah. But but when you when like what would you know, is it just that the that say European countries are going to take a much more proactive regulatory stance, or there's a there's more? No, no. they'll take a less okay. regulatory stance because they are more. Don't forget, in many countries in Europe, healthcare is free. In Canada, healthcare is free. When they're when they use specific examples that relate to things like healthcare or privacy you know, uh, sort of considerations. They're very, it's a very different perspective coming from outside the U.S. Because you're not, you're more open to the to ex- exploring the potentials than you are, and I'm not speaking this well and what's going on in my head, but it's kind of like, Europeans, Canadians, and some parts of the rest of the world are far more open to the ideas of not so much the security aspects of privacy or privacy, but the fundamentals of morally this is right. You may find regulatory issues with it, but it's the right thing to do kind of approach. That's where I'm trying to get. Um, They had to do something that i think if if there was any credit one of my criticisms of the book is i got to the chapter or the yeah the chapter on regulation that was uh, (laughs) i want to use the word anodyne and then i'm you know i'm sitting there and slap myself don't do that it was it was so it was superficial in the sense yeah. that they couldn't they couldn't open that one up without getting into a lot of the issues that that uh Joette has just um kind of enunciated when you go to the rest of the world let's just take you know kind of us and and eu and look at regulation the foundational principles the basis on which they will go out and then start building up a body of regulation, some of them are completely different. And that's very hard to deal with. For example, uh, privacy is not as much a personal privacy and and data sovereignty has some some variations, the starting places. Things that you uh, encounter with regulation between Europe and the US is are things like uh monopolistic monopolies, things like that. The starting yes. points are completely different. What's what's the concern? Uh, you know, when do you when do you say somebody has a monopoly in the US 
when you and when does somebody have a monopoly in the in the eu very different very very different reading so oh. those are the those are the kinds of things that that i think they they just could not get their arms around and and i would tend to agree with you not only that they couldn't get their arms around it based on the rest of the book but also because it is a quagmire it will be a quagmire but i think overall they didn't they could have paid more attention to the rest of the world yeah. in their viewpoint and in their perspective and brought that into the book which would have made it a lot more i don't want to say it wasn't palatable to me but it made me kind of stop and think about well if this is going to inform the ethics of the industry going forward there's a big gap to be closed yeah. there if you look at the recommend if you look at chapter 17 the regulations yeah. and they put uh, they 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 you you look at their recommendations and the, it starts with, you know, regulate uses, not the technology. Great. Makes sense to me. Then you get regulate clear, not potential problems. Mm -hmm. uh, then it yeah. starts to kind of make me feel a little bit like, okay, <laughs> if, if I can imagine something, then I can't regulate it because it's uh, not real, it's not facing me. That is a uh, typical U.S. approach to regulation. Yes. I wasn't, I, waiting, I was waiting, trying to waiting avoid for the harm, pointing that waiting out. For the harm. Yeah, I was trying to avoid pointing that out because I can understand from the writer's perspective, if there's not hard, tangible data to back it up, then don't do it. But that also says we are all smart people, and those that are really going to make an impact on this are creative and curious as well. They're going to imagine those not a doomsday scenario, but you know some level of scenario planning that that's going to emerge maybe two, three, five years in the future, and want to try and incorporate that into the regulation. And that was it, kind of a deal breaker for me. Yeah, I it, that was that that area of the book was my as well. Let me restate that. I was enthusiastic and excited and pleased with their introduction of ethics into the whole thing, and I think mm -hmm. they stuck with it. But when they got to the pragmatics of regulation i think they dropped the ball yeah based on what you're saying that's yeah i the the speed of regulation is a, you know increasingly a problem here especially because of the power differential that that's being created by some of these technologies mm -hmm. um and by the time we're we're regulated, this is and I, actually it's funny because I'm point, I was looking at a section in chapter ten about um, unintended consequences of privacy driving vertical integration. So they they do a nice job, and we've talked about this. We've talked about this as a topic um, that democratizing data is is a goal, but because of privacy concerns, right? Companies can't share data. And so we're we're building these vertical vertical silos of companies that buy, basically bypass the privacy privacy laws by saying, well, it's all within my organization. My my uh, what was the one that was like an insurance company doing it, becoming a travel company because they 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 have right. they can vertically integrate. Um, and Actually, um, yeah. I, my my phrase for all of that was the rebirthing of the conglomerate. Yes, but, but then those conglomerates become very powerful from a regulatory body, and we have, you know, they 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 are, you know, regulation averse. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, yeah. 
Um, you know, when you were talking about OpenAI a, a few minutes ago, and just to draw a parallel to the book, that was its market leadership is in a way in the context of the book the monopoly i'm sorry you're saying open ai is the monopoly it would be defined as the monopoly in the context of the book not so i'm 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 not i'm not connecting those dots well because you know, based on my interpretation and, and my reading of the book, I look at it and I go, okay, you're talking about vertical integration and, you know, as I said, rebirthing the conglomerate. But would you also then say that companies like OpenAI that have such a huge market advantage because of the timing, let's say a year ahead or more, that would make them monopolistic in, in the framework of the book? Now, Rich is shaking his head. I can see he doesn't necessarily buy into it. It's just my point of view. Monopolistic. Well, again, what's the difference between um, a company that has the resource and has figured out something that some that everybody else has not yet mm -hmm. and is willing to, you know, spend the money or find the money? to pursue it, which is exactly what these guys did. And, you know, it's a, let me ask you this then, you know, at what point was Google a monopoly? On day one? No, probably 18 months in. Okay. And when they start, when, when Google started paying people to have it as the search engine of choice and the de facto search engine for everybody else, that's when it became a monopoly. And I look at open AI the same way because ultimately who buys open AI? Microsoft maybe, Amazon maybe, whoever. Whoever it is, they will become the conglomerate that is dictating the landscape for the next two generations of whatever OpenAI comes up with, whether it's QSTAR or anything else. But well, maybe, actually drop back for a second, Joanne. Sure. What does, what does monopoly mean in your, I mean, are we talking about, have they monopolized the direction of the, of the technology? Have they monopolized the market? And therefore, the direction, direction as opposed to the competitive, the, the ability to compete and come up with alternatives. Is that, I mean, which is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, a, sorry, it's a little bit of both, but more on the direction. Because even if you look at what Anthropic is doing, it's not, there's such, there's, there's such a time. Um, they're so far ahead that they are setting the direction and the landscape. If you look at all the offshoots that are coming out, until Google makes its, itself really, really known in the marketplace to start challenging that, it is a monopoly, in my view. In terms of the way the next three or four iterations of tools are going to come out, I see it as being monopolistic. It's just my point of view. Yeah, no, I understand. How would you how would you assess the approach that's being taken by Meta, which has spent a lot of lot of money, put a lot of effort into foundational models. And whether it truly was by accident or by design, release it into the open source. And by doing that, creating this incredible explosion of, of 
some of them local, but many of them truly foundational models, some of which come damn close to what OpenAI is is doing with their with their foundational models and large language models. Um, the other thing that's that has happened with what Meta has done is they've made it possible for you know kind of truly the you know the, the th- let the thousand flowers bloom um mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the interesting advances and discoveries i think that you see in the papers that are generated what, daily um seem to be coming out um that don't require the same amount of training that don't require 170 billion parameters you know thrown into these things that is incredibly encouraging and it is not it's not under the control by any means in my mind of open ai right now that's you know that's that's incredibly it it is both incredibly prolific and interesting and going down lots of great um great pathways and it's also scary as hell because <laughs> you know it's it's like you know giving you know nuclear energy to you know the the 18 year old living in in the parents basement and, and you know playing it playing with it like a chemistry set so uh i i just i don't see it monopolizing either the technology direction or at yet monopolizing the economic environment it's damn close and it's a clearly a leader but i don't, I, I don't I, see it as monopoly for for monopoly i think there has to be some def, defendable uh, control of a limited, uh, it, well, not of a limited resource, but it just it it doesn't it doesn't feel like they have the type of lock. They have a lead, without a doubt, but I don't feel like they have the lock, um, yeah. lock that I would think of as a, a, mon- a monopoly, or even a, you know, maybe these LMs are going to be that big. But uh, my my expectation is in the next three years we're going to see um, maybe five. That, that we're going to see general access, you know, people are going to be training comparable models because we're going to, we're going to have broader, um, we're going to have alternatives to CUDA. We're going to have, you know, probably funded by Sam Bay, by not Sam, by Altman. Yes. Wrong Sam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the decade of the Sam is what we're going to end up calling this. <laughs> uh, I, I hope I hope he ha- turns out to be more uh, ethically minded. I think um, he, I think he is, but but I you know that's the same that's the same going going back yeah no 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 continue I, I was going to say going back to the book and and say and and Sam Friedman from that same perspective right some of some of what the the book assumes here. Or, or maybe tries to lay out is the need for governance and controls and pacing. And one of the challenges that I think we we talked about when we were beginning the conversation, you know, talking about um, the, the the challenges at OpenAI and the board is that there isn't a lot of desire to have breaks on any of the on on this technology. Right. This book is, is, is great. You know, you, you have grids and you're talking about all these considerations um, and how tractable some of these problems are. But there's an assumption in here that somebody's actually willing to do an analysis before they unleash um, data science on solving these pro- on, on these problems. And and I'm not sure that there's at, at the moment a lot of desire for for. Uh, control. Um, 
I think that there is a desire for control. It's not control. There's a desire for purpose. Mm, for these things to have purpose. And to Rich's point about meta, yes, it is very close. But what I see happening is a directional trend. And I think the the market leadership side, the economic arguments, it's going to go between one of three, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? At some point, it's open AI. And at another point, it'll be Google. At another point, it'll be Meta. But Meta's releasing it into the open, into the wild, so to speak, with no purpose other than I have to make my mark is what I think the gap is. And so that's why I believe that the word monopoly applies to open AI, because for those legitimately pursuing a course of using large language models for humanistic purpose or real problem solving, there is that purposeful goal. Whereas with meta, it's what can I do with it? And then there is somewhere in the background of that um, my purpose is to be revenue based, which is there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not quite the same. I mean, maybe it's just my view of the world, but that's what I see. The, the challenge, I think, with I mean, you're saying that Meta is the one who is is more revenue focused, or maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Because yeah, it in some cases it is, but because yeah. I see the that they open source their models. How is how is that how how's that a revenue focus? Because they've created a a a, a fertile ground for all for future acquisitions. They'll let things go to a certain point. People will start commercializing it, and then they'll start picking up those companies one after another after another, which is their history. They've always operated from that point of view. I don't see OpenAI doing that. I see it looking to set a direction where it can apply breaks where it it feels necessary. It's purposeful in what it's doing. That's not to say that there's not thousands upon thousands of other people out there with similar goals and ambitions or companies doing the same. But there's this level of purpose to each of the approaches. Are are you saying it's what's, what's different about them is the mechanism by which they generate new developments and advance the the capability of the technology one being you know i'm going to get a bunch of money and keep it inside you know a you know a sequestered research or research and development another is the open source you know i'm going to put it out there let the let the 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 world smart people work on it and, you know simultaneously and then cherry pick. Uh, you've got um, you know a lot of yes. kind of points in between. That's the that's the factory. You're so it's more the means by which you do it, not the purpose. The purpose is in in I think you can say that the purpose for uh, open AI for open AI the commercial company uh is absolutely i'm going to you know advance the the um i'm going to advance the industry's understanding and use of ai technologies and doing it inside a constrained and contained place I'm raising the money from various sources and I'm I'm funding or at least I'm supposed to be funding this 
umbrella organization, OpenAI, as it was originally formed. And I think that that's the part that most people kind of sit there and go, yeah, sure, you're not really. Um, Meta, Meta, Meta is, you know, is coin operated. AOS is coin operated. Google the, is coin operated. They are, but one of the one of the differences, though, is that by doing it as releasing it as software and putting it out there, they they don't have the control mechanisms. To, this is a, a, where I'm. What I'm hearing Joanna say is that it, is it you know OpenAI is has a lock on the model at some point where they can say I don't like what's going on here. It might it might be they're, they're both can be for commercial reasons probably, yeah. but they can stop it. Oh, yeah. but right with what Facebook Facebook did is is not that. It's not that. Yeah, Correct. And right. and the one point that that I would argue with Rich because I didn't hear him say it is remember that the whole open AI model started the umbrella is nonprofit. Oh. Yes. And and it, yeah, I, no I did I yeah. I did make that point the the whole rationale for creating the profit make the the for profit organization was to fund their higher the their greater right. the nonprofit they the greater purpose right and, exactly you know, I and you know I can also point to you know what Google has done with with DeepMind and it just you know it absolutely blows me away what those guys have done it, they're it's they're it's fantastic and by the way. DeepMind, every time they come up with something, they they just spin it right on out there and say, here it is for everybody to use. Mm-hmm. And had they not, we would be looking at the having calm through COVID and we we would be living in a different world right now. Because they Agreed. they they saved our bacon, quite frankly. Yeah. No, I I had I completely agree with you, but but from what Rob was saying, yes, the two models are very different, and and I see them in a forward motion where one is setting such a tone, the tonality and the way things will progress. I would be very surprised that you don't see in a year and a half from now a bunch of cherry picking going on by Meta. That oh, originated out of yeah, the right. will release it into the wild. I could completely buy into that. But by the way, they're not the only ones that have a bank account. And those same, you know, those same cherries are out there to be, you know, harvested and picked up by others. So, you know, Meta doesn't have a lock on it. No, they it doesn't. Have a, and and but you're right. They will be picking it up. So will AOS. Uh, so will uh, AWS. And, you know, and and who who knows who else is going to show up to this. And point. not never to be forgotten in the background of all of this noise is IBM. Yeah. Which, believe it or not, has done some very remarkable things of late in this space. Yep. Much of which will be tied to announcements around quantum. Oh, is that the <laughs> quantum? Quantum is has the potential to upset mm. the apple cart in a lot of ways. That's true. Absolutely. Big time, big time. And that was the other part of the book that I didn't see any mention of to any uh, great degree. Quantum, to any great specifically. Degree. Hey guys, I, I got a call. I got a drop. Have a good yeah. weekend. George. Thank you. Bye. No, I, I, I think they try to not um, go down. I mean, they they don't really take take a, a that much of a hard look at at generative AI. Of course, given when they were writing the book and when it came out, and to Rob's point. It's very recent, but then again, yeah. Right now, we're one year into the you know the generative AI 
you know, explosion. And, you know, it seems like it's been years, but it ain't been. No, I know. I know. It's it's celebrating its one year. It just celebrated its one year birthday. So, but yeah, I, I think they, they were conscious of not, I, I think it was a conscious decision not to try and, and, um, jump on any specific you know kind of big technology um currents or or because that that's gonna that would that would have actually dated their book and made it uh, uh it would have give made it a have have a limited lifetime quite frankly i think that's true but there's there's an interesting component that there's they they do assume that most of these techniques are relatively expensive and slow, and so I, I think there's a uh, there's a there's a yeah. question in this that you know that assumption of these being slow and expensive things to do, um, we, we you know we're getting to that might be a bad assumption and they could make the whole I think book you're like I think that's a quaint. perfectly great. Point and very important. Yeah, yeah. Very that's important. why I raised it. Yeah, yeah. Because this is fascinating. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how you consider one without the other. Well, <laughs> still, uh, I, know, I think what they, I think what they did was draw a line, and and yeah, they made some assumptions that that are based on history, but they drew a line and they said we should not try to you know, forecast the technical, the technology, um, it's all moving so damn fast. And I, it's, I agree with that, but, but, but the, we're, we're, we're entering a potential time when the, the, the breaks that we have from things being harder, expensive, you know, harder, expensive might go away. Um, and so there might be a weird Jevons paradox of of mm -hmm. data. Oh, I um, think we're already there. <laughs> I think we're already there. It's you know we we you know our our by necessity we are living with a, a kind of ambiguity and and inability to forecast what's happening next. Uh, the, actually, the, the statement that I've been making when people ask me about to predict the future with AI, which I think is foolish to do, I, but the, the statement I make is, it, this coming year, we will already see the people who are embracing these technologies pull, up, pull ahead of the people who are not. Yeah. And, and so, right, to me, which, is, which I hadn't really thought of as a Jevons Paradox statement, but we, we are you know, already at a point where you, you have to move forward with these. Yeah. Um, and the question is, you know, do you break, are you an icebreaker? Are you a fast follower? Everybody's going to have their, their various and assorted, you know, kind of strategies and tactics for, for, for jumping in. But those that do jump in, are yeah absolutely right uh guys i Bye. i gotta jump as well yeah, so that, that was that was fascinating thank you I, all i will this give you with one time. Uh, the words competitive advantage have now changed um because be a whole topic for another. <laughs> yeah what constitutes competitive advantage today in this arena Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I think about, Rich. <laughs> anyway. I'm putting, it, I'm putting it on the list for discussion. Thank you. Okay. Have Great. A good one. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. What a fascinating conversation. We are literally watching history uh, unfold in real time, and it's amazing to see books that have such uh, thought-out, uh, detailed analysis potentially disrupted um, within the year of them being written. Even though as they work hard to not be disrupted, um, the 
pressures on data science right now are extreme and the new things coming in are extreme. <laughs> These are the topics that we will keep digging down into in Cloud 2030. It is truly a unique uh, discussion group. I hope you are enjoying these podcasts. If you're listening at this point, then I assume you are. Please consider joining us at the 2030.cloud. We have an amazing set of discussions coming over the next quarter. Um, and then we will be going into uh, our next book, which is um, Never Split the Difference, uh, which is a book about negotiation. Uh, should be a fascinating read. Uh, I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. All part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.